Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. One of the delights of traveling around the country and talking about language is going to a town and asking people, what is the one word or phrase that marks you as being from this area? Yes, absolutely. Well, because you and I have this fascination with this kind of thing, I've been getting a kick out of a hashtag on Twitter called Words Where You Are. And this is one that was started by the editors of the Oxford English Dictionary. They want people to send them words for them to investigate as being particularly local. Mm -hmm. And I've had a great time going through and looking at some of the things that people are suggesting that they look into. And one of them that rang a bell for me was the word three-way. But it's not the three-way you think. Not the three-way you're thinking. No, this is a Cincinnati term. Do you know it? Is this a kind of intersection no. No. What is Ooh, it? Oh, that's a good guess. I but, don't know what it but is. But no, it's a kind of food. Cincinnati chili, which itself is a really specific kind of chili. It's mm-hmm. it's started in the Macedonian community there, and it, and it's chili that's seasoned with uh, with Mediterranean spices. But Cincinnati chili is made lots of different ways, including two way, which is spaghetti topped with chili, and three way, which is spaghetti, chili, and cheese. And there's a four way and a five way. And if you're from that area, you absolutely know what three-way means. <laughs> I should have guessed food. I should have guessed food. Of course, food. right? Yes, absolutely. And the hashtag again is? Words where you are. Well, I can imagine that you're going to share some more of this later in the show. I just might. And you know, this show is also about words where you are. We take calls from all over, including yours, 877 And we are happy to receive as much email as you want to send, words at waywardradio.org. And let's chat on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, welcome to Away With Words. Hi, this is Margaret from Montgomery County, Indiana. What can we help you with, Margaret? I was wondering about the, the correlation between the mimeograph machine and the word ditto. Because when I was in elementary school in the early 80s, we would have to take these papers down to the secretary's office and make dittos, as the teacher Mm -hmm. called them, on the mimeograph machine. We never made mimeographs, and we would get these little bluish-purpley inked copies to take back to the teacher, and I never understood how they were called dittos, because we had always (laughs) considered dittos something like an agreement, like, I ditto your sentiment. yeah. Uh-huh. And and I never knew why I wasn't carrying back a stack of mimeographs. <laughs> so. oh, oh, there's so much to unpack here. Oh, my First gosh. of all, we can talk about the coolness of those purple printouts as they came off the machine, right? They were cool to the touch. Oh, yes. Yeah. And what was your experience of the teacher passing them out to the students? <laughs> oh, it was it was kind of a big deal. Generally, it was a math test or a phonics lesson mm-hmm. at that age. But uh-huh. 
if if you were lucky, you got to crank the handle. It was a big <laughs> oh. deal. <laughs> so, so. Oh, you're all about producing them. Now I'm all yes. about when they pass them sniffing out to them. us and sniffing <laughs> them. And oh yeah, I, I just yeah. I remember the first time that happened in first grade, and I was thinking first grade is going to be all right. You were sniffing alcohol, you know. <laughs> I right? know. I was yes, I, yes methanol. Right? It's just. Oh, my gosh, that sensation. Yeah. I'm sure if I smelled it now, I would be immediately back in Absolutely. Mrs. Berry's class at Field Elementary. I guess I just gave mm-hmm. away two of my security <laughs> questions there. <laughs> oh. And your cat's name? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that methanol, not only is it a thing that you smelled, it, it's what made the pages cool as it evaporates and you get that mm-hmm. cooling sensation. Yeah. You're using mimeograph and ditto kind of interchangeably. Is that what I'm hearing, Margaret? That's well. I never understood why the mimeograph machine didn't make mimeographs. Like that's yeah. what the papers were called. Yeah. As a as a little kid, how did they come up with uh, calling the papers or the copies dittos? Yeah, I wonder if there was just some interchangeable yeah. looseness of or, language there, because because ditto machines and mimeograph machines were very very different. The mimeograph machines used a kind ah. of stencil system, mm-hmm. and the ditto yes. machines used kind of a waxed paper yeah, that was imprinted. Yeah, waxed paper with imbued with ink that would come through, right? Yeah, oh. and then the cool solvent. I mean, the kids were actually sniffing the, <laughs> the leftover solvent that that made the wax print on the page, if I'm understanding the process it made the, Let the ink come through, yeah. right? Yeah. Right, from, from that Where you particular... had pressed with their, either your pen or your typewriter. Yeah. 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 So it, it saves you from the problem of typesetting. That mm-hmm. was what made it so popular mm-hmm. uh, in terms of printing. But these two machines started separately. The mimeograph mm-hmm. is much older, dates mm-hmm. back well into the 18, early, mid-1800s ah. or so. Yeah. But it was a brand name. The machine itself was patented by Thomas Edison, but it was one of his licensees that came up with the name Mimeograph. And it was one of many names for these machines and really made that name stick. And it became generic. And then and by the, was it the 1919 or so, the Ditto machine came along with this different process. It produced fewer pages, but it was easier to do and, um, and the machines were cheaper. And it was also a brand name and it also became generic. And I can totally see how... By the time the 1980s rolled around, Margaret, and you were in school, mimeograph and ditto kind of seemed like the same because they both produced pages for your class Ah. and you weren't really familiar necessarily with what was happening inside the machine. Right. And then they got replaced by Xerox and Xerography, which which come from the Greek word for dry, like Mm. xeriscaping is when you plant huh. your, your so yard they, so that it doesn't require water. So the name Xerox, then and that's a selling point. You don't have to deal with filling the reservoir of your ditto machine with alcohol, right? Right. You're photocopying. Uh, yeah, oh, you're yeah. photocopying. Yeah, yeah. That's that's amazing. So how's that, well, Margaret? It's it's a pretty, uh, that's a pretty short story for a longer history of two different kinds of reproduction technology. I love it. I really appreciate it. I didn't realize ditto was a separate machine altogether, mm-hmm. so yeah. I, I've learned a lot. So yeah, thank that, you. Yeah, that's where the confusion Yeah, and that lies. word ditto, by the way, from Italian goes back hundreds of years, what, 1500s mm-hmm. in English. Mm-hmm. So it's been used in, wow. and there have there's a double apostrophe that you can use as a proofreader's mark, which means duplicate this or this has been duplicated. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. I've seen that. I didn't. I just called them double apostrophe. Yeah, but it's, that's also <laughs> that the name for that double apostrophe is a ditto. Huh. What yeah. do you know? There you <laughs> go. Wow. Thanks, Margaret. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.
the obvious etymology, of course, of mimeography is yeah, to, I write, thought you were gonna to write the same. Mm-hmm. Right? Mimeo means like to mime. You're mimicking something. Right. Mimic right? And, and then mime. graph to yep. write. Yep. But I wanted go. to talk about or just mention these other names for these similar machines that have kind of just been lost to history. The formograph, the mimeoscope, spirit duplicators. A ditto machine is a kind of spirit duplicator, right. but nobody calls it that except <laughs> if you're in the business. Yeah, you'd think that would be something else, a spirit duplicator. Yeah, yeah. It's like ghosts <laughs> and Ouija boards or something. Hectographs, roneographs, mm-hmm. papyrographs. Mm-hmm. All kinds of names for yeah, them. Yeah, but they're all, they're all, you can find them in patent applications and yep. old sales guides and yep. old catalogs, but they're just not as common as mimeograph. Yeah. And, I'm interested, too, that Margaret was focused more on the machines themselves. Mm -hmm. I can remember that thudding kind of of, uh, sound that they made, you Mm -hmm. know, when they were running those things off. But that kind of solvent that was in uh, those gave people headaches. The people who worked with them a lot, like it caused nausea and headaches among the office workers who were running them a whole lot. And it's not just the alcohol. The aniline, uh, which gave it the purple color, Uh, is, is poisonous. (laughs) <laughs> oh, really? <Yes. laughs> oh. But we are taking your calls, 877-929-9673. And we're accepting your emails, words at waywardradio.org. And we're talking to you on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. We've talked before about words that kids make up to make themselves understood when they just can't reach for the right word. Mm -hmm. We got a couple of examples of those recently. Sharon Bulger wrote to say that her two-year-old used to use the word lasterday. Oh, yeah. That's a fairly common one. Yeah. Yeah. For anything that's happened in the past, like not necessarily just yesterday, but something that happened two hours ago. It (laughs) happened lasterday because it's in the past. And then Angela de los Santos talked about how when she was working as a nanny, she had a charge, a young child, Mm -hmm. who used to use the word spicy to mean hot as in temperature. So the kid would, you know, stick a toe in the bathtub and say, oh, it's too spicy. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That reminds me. It's a little different, but my son used to have a problem with words beginning with S and P. Actually, many children do. So things weren't spicy. They were Pisces. Pisces. And they weren't spiders. They were piters. And did you eat paschetti? No, we didn't eat paschetti. Oh, you didn't? (laughs) <laughs> but it was cute, and it's something I remember. Now that he's 11, he's embarrassed by it, but I still tell the story. <laughs> to, to hundreds of thousands of people, <laughs> To hundreds right? of thousands of people. <laughs> I love you, son. 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, this is uh, Colleen Herning in Fairbanks, Alaska. Hey, Colleen, welcome. Well, welcome to the show. What's up? Oh, I just uh, wanted to know what the source of the word hangry is. A while back, I was talking about how I was feeling really hungry and how irritable I get. And one of my friends said, oh, well, you're hangry. And I hadn't heard that word before. Uh-huh. Can you guess where it comes from? I can guess that it's a combination of hungry and angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't sound hangry right now. No, I just had a really good um, bowl full of uh, bananas, yogurt, and cottage cheese. Nice. So I'm, I'm very right now. <laughs> That'll keep you going. There should be another word like that for after you're after you've had something yeah, like that and you're, you're really seated. happy. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Well, Colleen, hangry it dates back to at least the 1950s, which surprises a lot of people because 
it really had a resurgence in the 1990s. You kind of see it coming around um, in the uh, late 90s as a meme or a word that kept getting submitted and resubmitted to dictionaries and would show up in huh. new, new word votes and that sort of thing. Uh, in the last few years, Snickers started, the candy bar people started uh-huh. a, a television commercial campaign where they used the idea and the word of hangry to suggest that if you're irritable because you're hungry, then the Snickers is the answer. And I, that's up for you to decide. I think <laughs> your, your, your breakfast sounds better to me. But And so, so now we have this word that is um, in many dictionaries. And in January of 2018, recently... The Oxford English Dictionary finally included an entry for hangry, which kind of... Oh, that, that's so cool. That's like the crowning of a word. That's like the ensconcement <laughs> of a word. <laughs> yeah, when, they, when you make it into that dictionary, you know you've made it. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. <laughs> cool. Okay, well, thank you very much. Yeah, you too. Thanks for calling. Really appreciate it. Okay, doke. Bye. Okay, Bye now. Yeah, you don't want to have an argument with someone yeah. when you're hangry. No. You don't want to do something really important when you're hangry. <laughs> no, no. You want to be, what's the word for if you're happy because you're full? Happful? <laughs> flappy? Yeah, I, I don't know. Why don't we have a word for well, that? Well, I know that the feeling that I when I have, what, it's called the burrito baby. You eat <laughs> a giant burrito and it's like you're pregnant. <laughs> you're just like uh-huh, big round right? belly from yeah. a full burrito. <laughs> yeah, I guess you're sufficiently saffonsified. Yeah, there we go. Happens. Look that one up on our website. You'll come up with some <laughs> cool calls that we've taken about it. And call us with your language question, 877-929-9673. Or send it to us in email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and here he is, our quiz guide, John Chinesky. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. I have a great quiz for you today. Now, author Tom Wolfe passed not long ago, and it was a great loss to both fiction and nonfiction, and to the English language in general, as Tom Wolfe really wrote in a very idiosyncratic way. He came up with phrases or popularized phrases which have a place in the OED and that were only known in certain circles before he popularized them. So uh, we're going to do a little quiz about Tom Wolfisms, if that's okay. Great. Okay. Great. Good. For example, one of the most famous phrases he popularized, he used as the title of a 1979 book. Now, it had been around for years, meaning just what is needed. Uh, Wolf's application of it gave it a stronger sense, like having the qualities to perform a difficult task. Uh, now, that phrase... Do you know what it is? The, the right, right stuff. stuff. Yes, the right stuff. I was going to say applied to astronauts, but then once you say astronauts, that's the giveaway. Yes, yeah, so the right stuff. Let's look at some more. Now, uh, listeners of the show who were born in the uh, 1980s, 90s, or the aughts might need to have it explained to them why Tom Wolfe coined what descriptor for the 1970s? The me decade? The me decade. Yeah, do you know why that was? Hmm... Well, the, the 60s were still, they still remembered World War II. People were still concerned about what they could do for each other and for the country and rebuilding. Once they got into the 70s, people were more uh, inwardly directed. So that's why Tom Wolfe came up with the me decade. So, uh, Though I thought the 80s were more the me decade. People seemed a lot more self-interested in the 80s. Uh, Wolf took a military term for anti-aircraft fire and made it into a metaphor for criticism or bad publicity leading to a term for someone whose job it was to field such criticism in much the same way uh, Austin Hedges, Travis Darnot, 
Gary Sanchez or Kurt Suzuki would for their baseball teams? A flack. F-L-A-K. Flack. Right, F-L-A-K, flack. And what, do, what is the person who uh, f- takes care of such flack They're for people? They're a flack catcher. Flack catcher. A PR person. Yes, exactly. He called them flack catchers, right. Speaking of that sport, Wolf used a term for someone who exhibits tough or ruthless behavior reminiscent of someone who does not play a game with a soft projectile. Hardball? A hardballer. Call them a hardballers, yes, yeah. Wolf introduced a word meaning a high level of celebrity. It's uh, a takeoff on an earth sciences word for the layer about 30 miles above the surface of the earth. Stratosphere? Atmospheres. Right, but what do people who are celebrities, what are they more concerned with than, than stratus? Statosphere. Statosphere, <laughs> yes. I think you'll know this one. This term means to approach or even extend the limits of what is possible. It was a term used by pilots and astronauts, and the office supply mentioned in it means the combinations of speed and altitude, range and speed, or speed and stress that can constitute the limits of a plane's capabilities. Pushing the envelope. Pushing the envelope, yes. Wolf took a three-word phrase, famous as something a New Yorker might say, and squeezed it into a one-word interjection in Bonfire of the Vanities. You can even see it on a sign welcoming you to Brooklyn. Forget about it. <laughs> yeah, forget about it. You're in Brooklyn. All right, that's all I have for today about Tom Wolf. Uh, rest in peace, Mr. Wolf. Uh, we love all these phrases you gave us. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. We'll talk Thank to you next you, week. All right, talk to you then. More about language coming up with your calls, 877-929-9673. Hi, you have a way with words. Hi, my name is Stephen Shine, and I'm calling from San Diego, California. Hi, Hi Stephen. Stephen. Welcome to the show. What's up? Hi, thank you. Well, today um, I have a question about colors. Um, a while back in college, I'd studied French, and then we learned about the colors. And it's got me thinking recently, um, why in English do we take some colors from French but not others? Um, for example, there's blue and orange, which is blue and orange. Mm-hmm. But there's also noir and blanc, but in English we use black and white. And then there's also some other ones like marron, which sounds like maroon, but it's more chestnut color, and then brun, which is sounds like brown, and it is brown, but it's not brown. So I normally wouldn't know where to start with researching this question, but since I'm a long-time listener, I figured maybe you two might be able to help answer this and get to the bottom. And boy, howdy. <laughs> yes, we can. <laughs> so your question is, why do some of our colors come from French and some of them from somewhere else? Yeah, I guess, why is it cherry-picked? I mean, uh, okay. I, I guess in cuisine, we might be taking a lot of uh, French words, or maybe not. So I guess in colors, which is so, like, elementary, I guess, why is it so, like, Ooh, this but not that? Dude, that's your clue. Stephen, the elementary nature of the colors is the clue. There's this crazy thing that happens in, in, in languages, is that as languages mature... They add words for colors in approximately the same order almost always. That is, they first start with black and white, and then they add um, red, and then they move on from there and they start adding colors. So the newer, um, that's in quotes because new is a problem word, but the newer a language is, the less likely it is to have names for all the colors, and the more likely it is just to have black and white and red. So... All of the colors that don't come from French tend to be from languages that, from which English is descended before French ever had a role in English being English. So from Old Norse and Old Saxon, for example, and before that from Proto-Germanic, and before that the you know the Proto-Indo-European. 
So black, white, red, green, yellow, those first five, they come from Old Norse or Old Saxon. And then we get to the newer colors that come from Old French, that's blue, brown, Old Germanic, purple from Latin, orange from Old French, but via Arabic and Persian from Sanskrit, and then pink, which just blows people people's minds, is from is modern English, maybe Middle English, depending on how you want to count. And it's only from the 1600s. Pink is a relatively new color and added in. Wow. Pink, pink doesn't exist in that many languages as a perfectly synonymous word that you can say pink in English is the same as pink in another language. So it's really, really complicated. But the the longer a word has been in English, the more likely it is to come from the older languages that English sprang from. Well, that is just fascinating, especially that pink is, you know, again, if we're using invisible air quotes, yeah. new. <laughs> yeah, yeah, new. <laughs> new. Huh. Yeah, that is so interesting. There's a, there's a great book that I want to recommend to you. You can get it at bookstores just about anywhere, order it online. It's called The Secret Lives of Color. And it's by Cassia St. Clair. And she's written this amazing book that really gets into the etymologies, but the histories of the colors, the ones that come from bugs or other kind of living life, the ones that were directly associated with, say, certain empires or certain royalty. And the thing I love about it is that every entry for a color, the color itself is on the page. So often when I have these books or even articles that talk about colors, they'll talk about a color like vermilion and compare it to, a say, crimson. But they won't show me how those colors differ from each other. And this mm-hmm. book does that. So it's called The Secret Lives of Color by Cassia St. Clair. That sounds fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much for um, throwing water on this curiosity of mine that's, I guess, been burning for a bit. Well, so. maybe it's water so the seeds grow, not water to put out a fire. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much for your call. We really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Bye-bye. My pleasure. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Well, what's been on your mind in terms of language? We'd love to hear about it, so call us, 877-929-9673, or send your thoughts to us in email. That address is words at waywardradio.org. We were talking earlier about the Twitter hashtag words where you are, which is part of the Oxford English Dictionary's effort to try to find local words. Right. It's a big capture technique that put the world to work to come up with this language that might not be in the dictionary yet. Yeah. And a great example of that is time machines, T-Y-M-E. Oh, yes. Right. Yeah, we have listeners right now going, I know that one. Everybody in Wisconsin. (laughs) Right. Because time machine is what their brand name for a... ATM is in that right, part of the country. Right. And people from Wisconsin move to a different part of the world and they say, <laughs> well, that's what somebody said on Twitter. I went to college out of state and was very confused when I said, I have to stop at the time machine before we go to the bar. And people <laughs> laugh like I was making a joke. I just needed cash. <laughs> I love it, though. Wouldn't it be cool if we actually had time machines on the corner, like next to every bank? <laughs> <laughs> right. I'd pay cash for that. 877-929-9673. Hello. You have a way with words. Hey, Grant. This is Nancy Dennis calling from Panama City Beach, Florida. Hi, Nancy. Welcome to the show. It's so nice to talk to you. Hey, Nancy. Thanks. I have an old saying that my mother always said to me. She would be looking at me, and, of course, I would get antsy thinking, what have I done wrong? And I'd say, Mama, why are you looking at me? And she'd say, well, can't the cat look at the queen? And I wondered, does that have some history, or is that something she might have made up? Oh, my goodness. Does it have some history? 
<laughs> so let me recap here. So your mama's looking at you, and you ask her why, and she says, yeah. can't the cat look at the queen? Yeah. Okay. But Nancy, would you believe this goes back at least to the mid-16th century? Whoa. Yeah, the long history. Yeah, it's really, really old. And the sense of it is the same idea that you're talking about, that somebody can look at royalty regardless of their own status or position. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. It appears in a book of Proverbs from 1562 in the form, What? A cat may look on a king, you know? There are different versions of it uh, throughout uh, the time after that. The, um, like, a cat is free to contemplate a monarch. Did you see the movie Victoria and Abdul a year or two ago? No. It was uh-uh. about Queen Victoria, and this man is brought to her from India to to work for her, and he's given all these instructions about how you're supposed to treat the queen. You're supposed to not look at her in the eyes, and when you leave the oh, room yeah. where the queen is, you're supposed to back out of it so that you're being very, very deferential. And uh, the idea with this saying is that cats don't have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> They're so out of the class system that the the rules don't apply to them. And, and oh, by transfer- no rules apply to cats. <laughs> no rules apply to cats. It sounds like you have firsthand experience of that. No, but I just don't like to be around them. Oh, <laughs> and then there's some transference there, the idea that some of us are so outside of somebody else's system of respect that we are just observers and not really participants. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for enlightening me. Well, thank you for sharing this family story. Nancy, we really we appreciate were, it. Yeah. Re- really nice to talk to you. Take care now. You too. Enjoy thank- it, and I love the show. Aww, thanks so thank much. much. Call us again sometime, okay, Nancy? Okay, bye thanks. Bye. All right, bye. bye-bye. stopped in my tracks the other day when I used the term frog march and I was talking to a really smart person and she had no idea what I was talking about. You know this term. Yeah, absolutely. Frog march meaning to hustle somebody out of, of a bar or something yeah, yeah, like that? Yeah, usually by uh, not just hustle them, but you're holding them in a certain yeah, way. Yeah, yeah. You're either grabbing them by the collar or pinning their arms back. Right. And I was so surprised. I asked a couple other people I know who are also really smart and they didn't know this term. Frog march being a transitive verb. You frog march somebody out of their office or right. something because they've they've misbehaved. What I didn't realize was that it goes back to an even older use of Frog's March that originated with London police in uh, the 19th century, and it referred to carrying a drunk or a disorderly person out of someplace by carrying him face down between four people, each of them holding a limb. That's right, and then tossing them back in the back of the police van. Yeah. Then later it referred to marching somebody out on their feet but with their arms pinned back. Yeah. How so cool is it's that? It's a little different, but they're both um, unwilling. Yeah. <laughs> they both didn't want to go. <laughs> exactly. Frog march him out of there. You can talk to us on Twitter. Share the words you found in your reading at WeWord, W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello. You have a way with words. Hi. This is uh, Steve Austin from Dennis, Massachusetts. Hi, Steve. Well, uh, something that, that I've noticed over the years, I guess, something that I remember is a cartoon years ago was a little cartoon of a little boy in a donkey cart uh, with a long stick and a carrot hanging from this, a string on the end of the stick, holding it in front of his donkey, which obviously 
Every time the donkey went for the carrot, it moved the cart. And more recently, it seems that that has morphed into something along the lines of when they talk about a carrot and a stick, especially in diplomacy, they're talking about either here's a carrot or a reward or here's a stick, we're going to beat you with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it just, to me, does, it has a totally different feeling and meaning. Mm, so you're picturing that carrot being a motivator hanging out in front of the... the yeah, and, and almost uh, just just a little persuader that you never actually get, but it just kind of keeps you moving along in the direction whoever's holding the carrot wants you to go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's often the modern interpretation, but the other interpretation is actually the earlier one and what was originally intended, the idea that you use carrots that sometimes are given to the animal as a motivator. You don't you can't just hold a carrot out of sight or out of reach and expect the animal to keep going after it. At some point, they just give up. And then you have the stick as the threat. Some people right. kind of uh, misunderstand and think the carrot and the stick are about the stick from which the carrot is dangling. But that's yep. not right either. It's about the threat of the stick to wall up the animal, which you shouldn't do, but or the promise of the carrot, which eventually you will deliver. Um, okay. And you could the reason one of the ways that we can know that that was the original interpretation is varieties of this expression exist in other languages where they don't use carrot or they might use um, sweetbread in German and uh, um, gingerbread in Russian and a few other things. And some and some cultures they also use whip instead of stick and and a variety I of see. other things. Yeah. So okay. so the original really was about occasionally delivering on the promise of the carrot and occasionally delivering on the the threat of the stick. So yeah. you, you actually have to do them sometimes for them to continue to work. Right. right. That, that's random reinforcement yeah, when exactly. you're working with dogs. Yeah, anybody whatever. who's trained their animal knows mm-hmm. about random reinforcement. You don't always give them the, the treat when they do the thing mm-hmm. you want them to do. Yeah, they're more motivated if they right. get it only sometimes. Yep. Okay. Well, I had, had Googled it at one point, and one of the things that came up on Google was a uh, quote from Winston Churchill during the Second World War mm-hmm. talking about... Um, the German war machine slowly grinding its way after the carrot up the hill and mentioning a donkey, so sounding like, again, they were holding a carrot in front of the donkey for the German war machine to keep moving. That's right. Yeah, that's the modern interpretation. And the, yeah. the, the older version goes back at least to the 1800s, predating Churchill. Um, but the cartoon, it's almost kind of... Um, iconic, the idea mm-hmm. of using the carrot in front of the animal to motivate it so that it keeps going blindly and not really thinking about that it's not actually reaching the reward. Right. So that cartoon has been used zillions of times in a lot of different ways, and it's kind of part of our Anglo culture yep. just to think about it that way, but it's not the source of it. Okay. Steve, thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. Okay. Thanks very much. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye Thanks, now. Thanks, Steve. 877-929-9673. writer William Gass published a book in 2006 called A Temple of Texts, and in it he annotated a list of the 50 books that have most influenced his thinking and work, and he writes about his first reaction to reading each. He wrote about Ben Jonson's book The Alchemist, and I loved one of the lines in there. He said, the true alchemists do not change lead into gold. 
They change the world into words. Oh, that's nice. That is a magical thing. I saw that when my son learned to read and write. For him, just writing his own name on a piece of paper was practically a magical spell. Right. I've heard it described as giving someone wings, right? Yeah, the power. Of course, he also learned to write words like poo, but that's a different kind of power. (laughs) 877-929-9673. This show is about language examined through family, history, and culture. Stay tuned for more. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Leonardo da Vinci was a creative genius, of course, but he also had a really ingenious way of writing. You know about this, right, Grant? Yeah. Well, he wrote mirror image, right? Right. He started at the right-hand side of the page and wrote toward the left. And he slanted his letters in that direction, and each character was 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 inked backward, right? Yeah, if you put a mirror up to it, you it would make it. perfect sense yeah. to the rest of us. And nobody knows why he did that for sure. Some people think it was that he was trying to conceal what he was writing, but I think more likely is the fact that he was left-handed. And if you're writing with ink across a page, you're not going to smear the letters if you're doing that. That's right, yeah. That's the, the smudge, the telltale smudge on the left-hander's arm, right? Yes. <laughs> Yes. Um, It was probably also a good exercise for his brain. But that reminds me of another of my favorite words, which is boustrophedon. Oh, yes. Yes. Am I remembering this correctly? So you start on the upper left, as usual, Mm -hmm. and you write to the right. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the end of the line, instead of going back to the start of the next line, you simply start at the end of the next line and move Mm -hmm. left. So it's a zigzag all the way down the page, left to right, right to left, left to right, and so forth. Yep. Yeah, it's like you're mowing a lawn Yeah. or like an ox plowing in the field. Oh, are we hearing that in the word? We are hearing the (laughs) etymology of boustrophedon. It comes from Greek words that mean ox turning Mm -hmm. because that kind of writing mimics the action of an ox pulling a plow. How about that? And what's super cool is that there are examples of this kind of writing uh, in antiquity from Crete and Italy and India and Northern Europe and even Easter Island. And you see the Greek word for ox, boos, in a lot of other words. You see it in bulimia, which literally means ox hunger. You see it in bucolic, which is uh, describes the kind of place that you might see. A pastoral scene with cows in the pasture. Yeah. Yeah. And the strophedon has to do with turning. And you see that in catastrophe, which is literally a a turning down, a a turn of events that's very bad. So boustrophedon and boustrophedonic. And I wanted to share also that back when I used to write a word of the day newsletter years and years and years ago, uh, one of my subscribers sent me a ditty based on uh, the word boustrophedonic. 
Her name is Ilana Stern, and her ditty was, You have planted a seed most demonic. Now I yearn to be boustrophedonic. But to turn like an ox is quite unorthodox and damn hard in this mode electronic. (laughs) (laughs) How nice is that? (laughs) How many times do you see boustrophedonic in a ditty? I bet we have (laughs) listeners who would send us more. Uh, Maybe, and they might also tell us how they write, because I know there are exceptional people out there who just don't do it the normal way ooh, on purpose. Ooh, I'd love to hear about that, Tell too. us how you write, 877-929-9673, or send your stories of strange handwriting to words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, Martha. Uh, this is Mark. I'm calling from Los Angeles. Well, hello, Mark. What can we do for you? Well, I encountered kind of a, a word that I thought was I thought was everywhere, and I've recently found out it's not. Um, and the word is gank. Uh, I used it, I, you know, it means to steal, I believe, or how I use it. And I used it around some uh, work friends, and nobody knew what I was talking about. And, in fact, one person thought I was talking about something having to do with video games. So uh, I wanted to know what's the deal with that word, and why don't these people know what's going on? <laughs> what were you doing when you ganked something? I don't remember exactly at that time, but I've certainly been known to gank fries at a diner. You know, that's something that I would So you snag snag somebody else's fries without asking? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't want to order them myself, but I still wanted to eat them, so I just kind of took them. Okay. Oh, I have to confess, I didn't know the word either. Well, I I have it in one of my dictionaries that I made. Oh, I must not have gotten to that page. (laughs) You didn't make it to G? (laughs) I started from Z. Come now. (laughs) Um, yeah, I have an entry for that in the Official Dictionary of Unofficial English. Uh, the other question I have for you, I guess, besides what were you doing, is where do you think you learned it? It's hard to say. I mean, I grew up in the Northeast, in New Jersey, outside of Philadelphia. And then it just sonically sounds like some of the other uh, Philadelphia words like John and things. So I wondered at that point that maybe if it was a Philly regional. But then I started asking Philly friends, and they didn't know what I was talking about either. So. Do you listen to a lot of hip-hop? Um, I do know some, but I'm certainly, it's passing knowledge. I'm certainly not in the community. Okay. It, because the word is strongly associated with African-American black English, uh, vernacular English, uh, black English. Um, it shows up in hip-hop as early as 1987 in an NWA song. So gank is a verb meaning to steal. has got at least 30 years of history, probably more. The entries I did for it took it back to the, the 90s. There's a another gank that I think is related. It's where you have fake drugs that you pass off as real drugs, and the drugs themselves that are fake are called gank. So there, it's all about the idea of being deceived here. Pops up again again. You can find it in a ton of black fiction as well. You, but again, hip-hop lyrics are a real strong source of this. I would suspect that this is where most people learn the word if they weren't uh, one of the people who used the word in the first place. Sure. So would that, I mean, if that was NWA, was that probably Los Angeles area? Maybe? Pro- probably was the Los Angeles area. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, you, never know, you never know, though, because it was widespread. Uh, it's been widespread throughout its history. One note to make here is the slang lexicographer Jonathan Green and his vast and highly recommendable Green's Dictionary of Slang suggest that gank with the G, G-A-N-K, is related to jank, J-A-N-K. I don't right. think I buy that, but it is hard with slang to really know what's connected. And the other thing I'm hearing is, for some reason in my mind, ganking someone's fries 
is kind of associated with this interjection that I've heard people use with the yoink when they take, take <laughs> sure. something that isn't theirs, right? Sometimes they do it as a playful act to kind of keep away, but sometimes they do it because they want it. In any case, that's the most that I know. But again, a 30-year history is a long history for a slang word um, to stick around and keep being used. Mark, call us again sometime. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Take care. Have okay. a great day. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. What's the slang that you've been hearing that you just can't figure out? I bet we can help. 877-929-9673. Or you can send your questions to words at waywardradio.org and hit us up on Twitter at wayward. We are still getting email about our conversation about what I have come to call lane squatters. That is people <laughs> that are in front of you in line at the green light left turn lane. We were going to be in the retirement home going yeah. through the emails and phone calls <laughs> and letters from people with the new name for the person who won't turn left when the light turns green. Right. And it prompted a response from a truck driver in San Antonio, Texas, named Monty D. Young. And he said that among truckers, when you're talking about someone who holds up traffic at lights and in general just has no common sense when it comes to driving, Truckers call that a steering wheel holder. <laughs> I, love, I love that. Yeah. That reminds me of the office term for somebody who, the chair warmer. Chair warmer, just yeah. Just someone who's occupying a place but not doing the work. Yeah, same <laughs> thing. It's not just Monty's term. A lot of truckers use it, a steering wheel holder. Steering wheel holder. I'm afraid I might have been one of those. 877-929-9673 or email us. We love the email, words at waywardradio.org. Hello, welcome to Away With Words. Hi, this is Eric Johns. I'm calling from Fairbanks, Alaska. Hi, Eric. Welcome to the show. Hello, Eric. Thank How you. can we help you? Well, I have a question about uh, an expression that I feel like I'm hearing more and more or is kind of finding its way into everyday use. It's the expression, I'm just saying. It kind of feels like I'm, I'm hearing it when maybe uh, someone is having kind of a gentle debate or a friendly sparring match and... Uh, seems to be a way that somebody kind of holds up their hands to say, well, I just want to express myself, but but don't judge or critique my comment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Where are you hearing this? Well, I would say I hear it in my own family quite a lot. Um, and uh, I, I, just to think being more attentive to it in my family, I hear it more outside of that as well. So it seems to be coming becoming pretty prevalent. Um, again, I think just in the, the friendly kind of sparring and, and banter uh, between friends when you debate an issue, you know, maybe uh, the sentiment would be something like, uh, I'm just saying don't drive so fast. Uh, but in fact, I find it to be kind of an unfinished thought. Uh, and rather, it's become sort of a way to soften or maybe blunt one's comments. Yeah, uh, Eric, I was going to ask if, if it felt disingenuous at all. A little bit, because on the one hand, they're making a statement, and then on the other hand, they're saying, but you don't really have the right to uh, critique it or weigh mm-hmm. it or uh, or whatever. I, so I want to say what I want to say, but but don't interact with it too harshly. You know what I mean? Right, right. They're kind of beating a hasty retreat. Yeah. It's <laughs> they're a, lobbing yes. something and then running back behind something it's else. It's a bit of a dodge yeah. or a bit of a weaselly like, Yeah, it's like a, like a verbal emoji or something, you know, just a little <laughs> tag onto oh. the end of it. 
That's, well, yeah, well, what would a, that look like? I a, wonder what that would look like. There's a word for this in linguistics. It, it's, it's not that common, but rhetorical back off is what you've just described, where you literally back off of what you've just said. Yes, that's it. Okay. And you're, that's you're exactly disavowing what it, like. it. Often it is about trying to avoid the consequences of having an unpopular opinion, where you pretend yes. that you're just presenting unbiased fact. But what's really happening, your presentation of the fact is in itself a statement of opinion. Right. It has meaning. Yeah. It, it does. You're asserting something and you're going to the point of, of saying it so others can hear it. But, uh, but again, you, if they're unwilling to accept it sort of carte blanche... Uh, then it is it is a back off. What did you call that again? It was a, the a rhetorical, rhetorical back off. Yeah, and you yes. can find some if you Google that phrase. You'll find some academic papers on it, and if you Google even deeper, you'll find that linguists have been discussing "I'm just saying" in similar expressions since at least the early 2000s, and the the expression is kind of a almost contagious catchphrase has been around longer than that, a kind of thing where once somebody around you says it enough, you kind of pick up the habit yourself. That's why I want to be careful yeah. to say it's not always about dodging the consequences of your words. Sometimes it's just a, a tag that you throw onto yeah. a sentence mm -hmm. without any real meaning. I, I've noticed, um, you know, among, you know, with my son or with some of his friends, and he's a, he's a teenager, he's 16, I've even heard it doubled up here recently where somebody said, I'm, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. Yes. <laughs> I actually have recorded citations for that. Um, and, and there's a, um, it's a, a parallel to sorry, not sorry. There's a few of these going around yeah. where, where you're saying one thing and immediately denying the thing that you just said and kind of expressing your ambivalence, but at the same time trying to get away with something. Yes. I find it frustrating. <laughs> there, there are others, um, present company excluded. Mm. or no, Not to be critical, but... Or no offense. Mm -hmm. Like you say something offensive, then you, at the end you say no offense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so sometimes we'll, we'll make the qualifier on the front end of our comment. This is one, it seems to be more often made on the back end yeah. uh, to sort of, again, potentially get away from again, the consequences of what we might have said. Mm -hmm. Well, Eric, now you have me wondering what the emoji would look like for that. Maybe, maybe somebody with their hands out in front of them or something. I'm not sure. I think it's somebody running away from their words, oh, maybe. A, a running emoji. No, I, I envision that posture of somebody when they make that statement. They kind of hold their hands up, palms up, almost in apologetic fashion. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. It's an insincere apology or, or whatever. Uh, yeah, that could be a whole other show right there. What's uh -huh. the emoji for this expression? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> we'll have to talk to the people at Unicode or make our own submission to the Unicode for an emoji. What? Yeah, <laughs> uh, away with emojis now. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, thank you for your call. We really appreciate it. It was great chatting with you. You too. Take care. Thanks, Eric. Bye-bye. You bet. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673 or find your emojis and hammer at that keyboard and send them to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Julie in Nantucket. Hi, Julie. Welcome to the show. How can we help you today? When I was a teenager and living in New Hampshire with a very large family, I was going past one of the bedrooms one day, and my father said, Julianne, get in here and help us move this bed. So I went in, and I picked up the end of the bed that was open. My brother and father were on the opposite end. Didn't think about that at the time. And... I only could get it up, you know, a few inches off the floor, and their end was pretty high up. And my dad says, Julianne, what's the matter with you? Are you as weak as hen turd tea? <laughs> <laughs> At which point I just 
started laughing and dropped the end of the bed completely. And then my brother started laughing, and my father was like, oh, God, I can't get anything done around here. <laughs> <laughs> as weak as hintered tea? As weak as yes. hintered tea. Yeah, well, I'd never heard him say it before, and I just, I lost it. It was too funny. Was he someone who kept chickens or or did gardening? Well, he liked to have a garden. And he might have grown up with one, I'm not sure. And they, he did get us chickens for a couple of years, but I think he gets so fed up with none of the kids wanting to actually take care of them. And then, oh, I know, we had uh, weasels or something coming in and helping themselves to the chickens. Oh, so. yes. huh. <laughs> well, the only thing I can think of is that there's something called chicken poop tea more often than hinterd tea, and it's a way of sort of composting chicken poop by uh, using about one-third poop and two-thirds water, and you soak it in there in a pillowcase or a burlap sack. You don't drink it. No, 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 you do not drink it. That crossed my mind for a second. No, no, I'm sorry, I should explain that that some people think that this is something helpful to put on your garden. There's some controversy about that. Got it. but some people think it's good for plants, and it's known around the world as either chicken poop tea or chook poo tea in, uh, really? in Australia and New Zealand, yeah. where, being where a chook is a chicken. chicken. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, or oh, rabbit so this poop. Is, oh, so this is actually a practice of some sort. Yeah, it's a kind huh. of fertilizer, basically, a liquid fertilizer. Yeah. Oh. It would look... I, I assume, I haven't spent much time, any time with it really, but I, I assume that it looks just sort of like weak coffee. You mean something. you didn't do the whole week? <laughs> <laughs> why, it's on my list. When you have I'm YouTube, sorry. why do it yourself? I just didn't look at somebody else make the mess. <laughs> but as, well, as far as I know, that's unique to your father. Yeah, that, I've that never heard particular it use of else. it, but it's, it's pretty clever, as weak as hen turd tea. It weak is pretty clever. And, and he got your attention. <laughs> and made you laugh, <laughs> which is always a dad's and job. And I thought of it over the years, you know. And then I listened to your show a lot, which I love, by the way. And um, all, just, you know, all these idioms, you just wonder who came up with these things. You know, you just wish you could find that one person that came out with it way back when. <laughs> well, you <laughs> know the guy who for. came up with that when it looks like. <laughs> yeah. Oh, good. <laughs> Talk one up for dad. Yeah. <laughs> Julie, thank you so much for a really nice call. All right. We really appreciate Thanks. It's it. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Okay. Take care, okay. Julie. Bye-bye. 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 Sometimes stuff just belongs to a family. We've had yeah. calls where something someone said lasted for generations and mm-hmm. never really left the family, but really, really belonged in, to that family and characterized their their humor or their outlook. Yeah, it yeah. Sounds and like one and of those you things. hear something like that and it just takes you back, yeah. right? There's, there are people who are great at language who don't write books and don't give speeches. They just do something else with their lives and their their only audience is their family. It sounds like one of those guys. Well, we'd love to hear the stories about language that have come down to you through your family. Call us 877-929-9673 or send us an email. The address is words at waywardradio.org. Want more Away With Words? Listen to years of past episodes at waywardradio.org or find the show in any podcast app or on iTunes. Our toll-free line is always open, so leave us a message at 877-929-9673 and we'll take a listen. We love to get your messages at words at waywardradio.org or hit us up on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D and look for us on Facebook. This program would not be possible without you. 
Grant and I are out to change the way we listen and think about language, and you're making it happen. Thanks also to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director and editor Tim Felton, director Colin Tedeschi, and production assistant Emma Kelman in San Diego. In New York, we thank quiz guide John Chinesky and that master of keeping it real, Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc. From the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett. So long. Bye-bye.